supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Stunk for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hello, hello. Now, we will be talking later in the program about Rocketman, the Elton John biopic, which is has its Australian opening tomorrow, as uh, well as... Glenn. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have, there's a lot to break sure, down sure. here. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it premiered, had its premiere at the State Theatre on Saturday night, and it will be available everywhere you, in cinemas everywhere. You were there, in the front row, as I imagine. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. It was, I've been waiting for this my entire life. <laughs> and we will be also be talking about Agrabah and Ababa. Aladdin. Aladdin, which is in cinemas now. But first, it is Sydney Film Festival. It is the biggest film event of the year. It kicks off... In Sydney, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not get ahead of ourselves. (laughs) No, no, come on. The world, the world. Sydney is the centre of the universe. We are the oysters of the world, you know. The pearls are the oysters and whatever that means. Is there a world outside Sydney? I don't know. I've been in the studio so long. All I I know is the the movies, and (laughs) Sydney Film Festival gives me plenty of those. It it will be in cinemas, in event cinemas, George Street, Ritz. State, State Theatre theater everywhere from the 5th to the 16th of June, one week today. Forgotten yeah. the scary Dendi Opera. And the Opera Keys and yeah. Dendi Town, plus Kazool Powerhouse and a few more. I made it come on off him. And the Cromorthium. So, but we are talking this week about the documentaries that are screening at the City Film Festival, and we have the documentary programmer for SFF, Jenny Neighbour, here with us on the show. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we want to talk about the vast array of documentaries that you have screening at the festival. First, a more broad question. What You're the programmer. What went to the creative direction and decisions broadly into selecting films for this year's program? Uh, it basically boils down to what's out there. What are you interested in? What do we think our audience are interested in? Um, what's going to be ready in time for us? So you look at what's in production. And then you kind of almost try and create a feast, you know, and a feast being something that you might want to eat, but you also know your friends might want to come and eat and join you. And so you've got a complexity of flavors and topics and subjects and languages. Um, and then it all comes together. Um, and you try and create that balance. I think it's really important. Um, and I think that's what Sydney Ciders seem to like, to be able to have a taste of everything that's out there in the documentary world. I'm just curious, does Sydney Film Festival receive a lot more documentary submissions than it does feature submissions? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, because yeah. it really seems like we're in a golden age for documentaries right now. You know, I think people have been saying that for about 15 years. Right. Um, because documentaries just uh, at festivals all around the world become stronger and stronger. And while maybe not at the box office with all the streaming services now, there's a mm. lot more complexity and depth around what's available mm. in the documentary and, world. And the tools required to make a documentary are cheaper than ever. Absolutely, so. and lighter as well. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I was thinking uh, of the political documentaries, and there are many, 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 many of them, but uh, the one that I've front and center of mind is Reason, which uh, I'm just thinking of because India just had its elections, and it's talking about some really, really interesting things in what is the Hindu right-wing fascism, and it's quite brave, it's quite confronting, and, and what can people expect from it? Four hours, right? That is true. That is true. It's four hours, but it's an incredibly deep and elaborate story. I mean, it it follows the whole kind of shift of between faith and reason and the divisions that create in the community. And also poverty comes into it, the wealthy, the way the wealthy in India kind of own many of the 
electoral seats and all of that detail. And Anam Patwadan, the filmmaker, is uh, he won the award in Amsterdam for this film and he's renowned for, for kind of trying to put these really complex ideas into these extraordinary essay films. It's, it's not doubtful it's ever going to be shown in India and it's one that probably will never appear on your TV screens, just the length would be a bar for that, I guess. So one to really see at the cinema, I think. Talking about political documentaries, did you notice any strong trends in the films that were submitted and that you selected? I think there's very much a sense that the personal is political. Mm. Uh, So there are stories like, for instance, The Edge of Democracy. Um, The filmmaker Petra Costa, she's basically the same age as democracy in Brazil. Um, and but her parents were you know, fought for democracy, and she comes of age as democracy arrives. But in that arc of her telling that story, corruption, um, prosecution, and the end of this, the decline of democracy happens. So it becomes a very personal story. It's shaped her life. It's shaped her family's life. Um, and I think that's very common in a lot of the films that are around at the moment, how politics shapes your life. Mm-hmm. I must regret on another level that there are so many Brazilian films playing at the festival. I caught a preview of one today, which is screening an opening night, Divine Love, and Osa Marighella, which is one of the major stays of the festival. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Marighella, I have to say. Desperate to see it because I'm a big fan of Vargamuras, the filmmaker. Um, and he's also an actor. He was in uh, Elite Squad uh, a few years back, but he also was Escobar in Narcos. And he's going to be at the festival. So yes. it's going to be fascinating to uh, hear him talk about his first feature film, his first as a director. Now, changing tech just a little bit, one I'm quite keen to catch, I think it's the only film I've ever seen at Sydney Film Festival which has a question mark in the title. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, these, this group was actually on my radar for a bit because I watch Riverdale and Sabrina the Teenage Witch and they are in quite some trouble with the organisation which is front and centre in this movie. So yes, Hail Satan with the question mark. Uh, and it's really surprising because it's such a, a, an extraordinary story of of a group that's basically fighting for their right to support Satan, who they believe in, and how the the American system is like, well, there's rights for everybody else, so maybe there should be rights for you. But, of course, the climate they're fighting in is not one that's very... Uh, doesn't come down on their side, I think you could say. Right. Um, and it's, uh, and it's uh, made by Penny Lane, and she's a really interesting filmmaker who looks at these various groups and different voices in the U.S. Hmm. I was curious about the untitled Amazing Jonathan documentary, which has a very confusing description in the guide. It sounds like um, it, it sounds like it could be something like Exit Through the Gift Shop, um, a, a film that's pl- in the sense that it could be playing a prank on the audience, but I haven't seen it. So, I think that, that it is confusing to describe because a lot of it is about filmmaking itself because... The director of the film decided to make a documentary about a magician, the amazing Jonathan, who had been told that he only had a few months to live, but three years later, he's still alive. Um, So this filmmaker, who's a young filmmaker, says, I'm going to make a film about him, gets permission to do so. And within a short space of time, discovers there are several other people making a documentary about him as well. And they all keep getting in each other's ways. So he begins to (laughs) doubt his subject. He begins to doubt what the subject of his documentary is telling him, Hmm. Um, whether it's all trickster 
whether it's, you know, the magician is telling him lies, basically. And so it becomes very much a story about filmmaking and what do you believe and what, why do you think that is true? And also at the same time, a film about this trickstery kind of guy who is taking this bunch of filmmakers on a journey as well. Right. It's, it's, and it's in, inevitably very funny in the process. Reminds me of a film from last year called Mesampur, which did the same thing about doubting its subject kind of thing. So it's fascinating. Now I'm drawn towards uh, festival favorite Frederick Weissman with uh, Monrovia, Indiana, which uh, apart from the actual film itself, which is fascinating, the one thing that strikes me is how cleanly it's shot. I mean, there's something about how Weissman frames its subjects, which I feel a lot of filmmakers can learn from because the camera work is astounding and it is very old school but also fresh because I feel filmmakers complicate things too much these days. He he gives his characters a lot of space and you really get the sense of them living in that community. In It's set in a Midwest town and there's the plains around it, there's the kind of agricultural work that goes on, the streets, the shop fronts. You really get a sense of place and you don't feel crammed into rooms where someone's being interviewed. You're, I mean, he, he's always called the ultimate fly-on-the-wall filmmaker, um, and he always argues with that because he says a fly-on-the-wall has no intervention, and he, he does have intervention. He's, he totally picks his moments and his subjects. Um, but for me, this one also, because he's now in his late 80s, if not 89, 90, I think, um, there's a sequence in this film which talks about death that has a funeral, and it has this ceremony. And there's a lot of moments in the film that are about ceremony, um, uh, about the kind of ceremonies and the processes that we go through. And it's almost like he's reflecting on that end of life as well. Did you, did you feel that when you saw it? Yeah, I did. And also it's, it's sad because not only from a, I think, personal point of view, but also the people who've been left behind almost, and they feel that uh, they're at the end of their kind of life, that they knew it. So it is metaphorical in that sense as well. But also just just fascinating to see how someone could put something so personal in a story which has nothing to do about them. But yet, I guess uh, Herzog does it with meeting Gorbachev as well. Yes, so I think he does. Both the masters are kind of yeah. back to form. And you could certainly tell Herzog is like, he just adores Gorbachev. and, and there's, <laughs> which, there's, is, there's, which is very scary to digest <laughs> for me personally. But, but, but you, you got to admit, he's, he's very, yeah, very convincing. <laughs> On the subject of masters and passing, we have uh, the final film, by Agnes Varda in the documentary section this year, Varda by Agnes. Um, I'm a huge fan of Agnes Varda, so... Me too. Uh, yeah, the the trailer made me think this is going to be a tough watch in some ways. I've, I've, I mean, her films, in, outside of Vagabond, I would never describe her films as a tough watch, yeah. but, I mean, only in the sense that I felt tremendous sadness watching <laughs> to, to know that she's gone, I guess. Tremendous, the trailer. yes, sadness that she's gone, but the film is very funny, mm. It, she's always such a mischievous mm. filmmaker. Um, she play, play, plays tricks both visually um, and in time. Mm. And so when you're watching, you're just reminded of what a talent she is, What, how much she enjoyed life, how much her films kind of show that joy in life. And so it's, an, an, it's not actually sad. It's a celebration. Um, I came away feeling like I've got to go and see all her other films again. Uh, you know, like... This is a filmmaker who is 
no one, there's no one like her. Mm. Um, and I actually saw the film uh, when it premiered at Berlin, at the film festival in Berlin, when she was there and she was introduced beforehand and she was very frail and she came up on stage and gave the most remarkable speech not one of those kind of long and boring ones but one that was full of the pleasure of cinema and all that her life has been evolved and I think that's the spirit of the film so no don't you don't need tissues okay. at all for this one Okay. Um, another film I'm very keen to talk about, one I caught very recently, was one about a book, a childhood book I still have in my cupboard that I think many people have read all around the world. And what struck me about this, among other things, was the some of the best cinematography I've seen in any film this the, year. Yeah. Yeah. We, me and Glenn watched this one together. The um, The Miracle of the Little Prince. It's it's a totally delightful story, and I think and we had very exciting news this week that the Sammy woman who features in the film is going to be in Sydney. Oh, really? That's wonderful. That's great. And, oh. and her story is extraordinary. But you know, going to the Sammy community were often not allowed to use their own language; they were bullied, and she finds comfort in reading The Little Prince, and then later becomes a translator and translates it into Sammy. Mm. And so this idea that different communities can take different things from that book. And I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to meeting her. I, I am too. I would love to meet her. I spent some time over um, January in the Australia Day weekend in northern Finland and Sweden, and I met actually a number of members of the Sammy Youth Parliament, and they were telling me about this, that they don't have an opportunity to learn the language in schools, speak it openly, and the fact that there is this outlet is... And has and those avenues are increasing in some respects is really really good and I'm so glad that she will be here. Uh, yes, and I think also what's interesting in that film is the the very trade, if you like, of translation that the the two Chinese interpreters who kind of both take different tangents on sentences and we don't think about that sometimes when we see subtitled films you, you the slight nuance the, the difference that can make so mm. it's, it's a it's a remarkable film i think often the subtitles we get are, are quite poorly translated unfortunately so i think it varies country to country to be honest mm. some are much better at doing it than others right yeah another film that looked to be really beautifully shot was up the mountain um, I saw watched uh, the first few minutes of this one and then thought, oh, I'll get to it later because I was not um, awake enough. But uh, it it's, it looks... I did not realize it was a documentary. It looks like it's this exquisitely, beautifully framed it, It's fi- framed to match the paintings mm. in, that are featured in the film. And it's it, it feels like a, a real community in transition, like a, a an artist living in this uh, valley in China or a mountain valley in China. And he has this group of the most delightful women who paint folk art and they come to his studio and they chatter away and uh, and then they go down to the village and down to the lakeshore, which is rapidly changing. It's becoming like much of China is changing, population mm. growing, but there's also tourism involved. And you get this extraordinary sense of a community in transition. And that's very true of the Chinese documentaries in the festival this year, like One Child Nation and Leftover Women, this kind of shift that's going on in the community there. Mm. Yeah, we caught Leftover Women. It's quite a confronting one. Yes, yes. There's some scenes there that as a woman you makes you definitely want to stamp your feet and yell at the screen. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Talking about transitions and the shift in communities, uh, 
The Brink featuring Steve Bannon was uh, something that I wanted to hate, but I couldn't, and I was very surprised by my reaction to it. I'm thinking, don't shoot the messenger here. We all want to hate Steve Bannon. But... I know. No, but I'm not saying that I still don't hate Steve Bannon, but I'm still saying the subject of Steve Bannon in the documentary was something I didn't hate. So. I think it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. Um, Alison Clayman is just kind of gets under his skin. Um, and she's like this really quiet presence. And you feel that he doesn't, you really feel that he's trying to play it like he's trying to play at her. He's trying to wind her up. But she never responds. And she's just this figure who's just taking it all in and revealing him in the process. It's a, it's a really clever work. And just the resilience that it takes from a filmmaker's point of view to actually, you know, engage with your subject or not engage sometimes and how can you actually tell stories and in that sense, it's actually a quite confrontational and hostile environment in that sense. So it was fascinating to know that. And additionally, we haven't we've been asking what we're very keen to see or what have seen. Is there one that has struck you or that we haven't mentioned that you think or it might fly under the radio or that audience audiences should seek out? Yeah. What would you like to recommend? <laughs> I like to make it well. There's there's a couple. There's um, we were talking about China. There's another film called American Factory, which is actually an American film, but it's about a Chinese company that goes to open a factory in China, um, making parts for cars, and it is a total culture clash, which is sometimes is very funny, sometimes is quite shocking. But really, we were talking about the personal being political. The people in this town in the US desperately want work. The Chinese uh, managers who come in desperately want to make it work. But there is such a difference in their approach to work, to um, your colleagues at work, to the hours you work, that it just keeps failing on every level. So it's while it's very funny, it's also really fascinating. Um, and there's one other which, um, on another political one, on the inside of a military dictatorship, um, which is about the transition to democracy in Myanmar and, and how it's never really, it just hasn't ever had democracy. So how is a country that's not had that experience, how do they actually make that change? How do they put those values in their thinking? It's, it's quite a fascinating film. And interviews with all sorts of ex-military leaders um, that really puts the, his, puts the history in um, really great context. Mm. So we've spoken a lot about the films, but we want to know how to get there. So people who want to buy tickets, where do we go? So you go to the Sydney Film Festival website, uh, sff.org.au, and just choose your films and uh, click where you can. Wonderful. Jenny, we are looking forward to the festival, and it's only a week away, so book this film's already selling out. Yeah. Many of uh, have sold Sales out. Sales are a lot faster than last year, so I would yeah. say now is the time to look at that program and get on what Ex Libris, I think, last year was the first film to sell out, I think yes. within like the first hours or so, I'm which sure. was surprising. I'm sure Apollo 11 will sell out yeah. pretty quickly. I think the first one to sell out this year, another documentary, was the Miles Davis one. Yes. Oh, yes, Birth of Cool. I think yeah. there might just be one or two tickets left, but oh. it's it's great. It's got the best archive footage. And, and then following very closely, I think, by the uh, Marianne and Leonard, the one about Leonard Cohen and his oh, muse. Yes, mm. yeah. The Rolling Thunder one will have to do well, the Martin Scorsese documentary on There's Bob Dylan. so many yeah. uh, music documentaries this year. Oh, don't miss the reggae one as well. Oh, Personal yes, favourite, yes. the reggae yeah. one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. yeah, Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think the next one we're catching is Apollo 11, but we will be catching a few of the music ones at the festival. Jenny, thank you so much. And we'll be back right after this, talking Rocket Man and 
my God, Agrabah, Aladdin. Stay tuned. Saturdays from 8pm for Keeping Score. My name is Leah and each week we'll unravel the soundtracks and musical scores from some of our favourite movies. The soundtrack to your Saturday night. Keeping Score on 2SCR 107.3. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we are talking all things movies. We just had the City Film Festival and now we are into, well, Rocket Man. Oh my God! We uh, thought you thought it was going to be a long, long time, but we are here now. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, I, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid all your supposed Elton John references. There are not there going to acknowledge any of them. There are just just so many. I was the young man in the 22nd row at the premiere <laughs> on Saturday night. Um, I could go on for a long time, and the reason for this is, and this is the one time I will. I've, I think I've ever said this. I have real trouble. Um, assessing this film objectively in many senses because I'm a bigger Elton John fan than I'm a movie fan. I was at Elton John I concerts know. on my eight. I yeah. think everyone knows. Everyone who's ever listened to even one second of this show knows that. Yeah, that fair, fair call, fair call. Actually, it was just coincidental. We were in Kingsman and thought, "Wow, Elton just wrote us a theme." Yeah. Track. So I went into this. I've been waiting for a movie about Elton John my entire life. It is directed by Dexter Fletcher, who was credited with Bohemian Rhapsody and starring Taron Egerton as but Elton John. Not at John. the Oscars. Not at the Oscars, no. Where it has no director. No. Oh, dear. Uh, Jamie Bell as Bernie Taupin, Richard Madden, and a number of other... Uh, Bryce Dallas Howard is in it. There's a decent cast. This is a music biopic, a standard one in many respects, that follows Elton from his earliest days as a child and as a child piano prodigy to the early 80s era of Elton John. Now... Is this, it good? Is it good? <laughs> all right. All right. There's a lot... To, first of all, in terms... I think I want to... Distinguish the style of this film. This is something between Jersey Boys and Mamma Mia. Sometimes it's music in the background. Sometimes the music is, is incidental, like when Elton is nutting out your song on the piano. Other times it's fully fledged Mamma Mia style explosions of music. Egerton, first of all, is outstanding. He looks the part. No, he's not as good a singer as Elton John, who is, but he can measure up in so many respects. He's about he, as good he as you can expect. He, according to his statement at the premiere, um, everything you hear is him. The only song he sang live was your song, which had a, he was nutting out at the, on the piano quite early in the, the film. So a lot of it is dubbed, but it is all him, according to Egerton. Well, it, it is called your song, so I get it. I mean, it doesn't, you know. It would be pretty. It would be pretty unfair. It would would be pretty unfair if it was someone else. Look, um, this in terms of the musical numbers, it hits about half the time. I want love, which is very early in the piece, which is the only late era Elton John song. It's eighteen years after the other, the second latest piece was the best of of the show. Honky Cat with Richard Mann was excellent. Crocodile Rock was good. There's a scene where they all lift off the ground, and it's like you're at an Elton John concert. You can feel it. Good Burial the Road, and my God, Pinball Wizard. Yeah, but was it good? Was it good? Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. We, we, we don't want the best of Elton John album songs. But this is we what... want the movie. All right. The movie okay. good. Picking up on that, that's what this is. This is one of the problems with this film that Bohemian Rhapsody had too. There is one song in this film, Border Song is the exception, where it is not in the Greatest Hits volume. This is an Elton John Greatest Hits concert, which is only good if you like Elton John. I love Elton John. I'll be seeing this film a lot for years to come. If you're not an Elton John fan, frankly, there is not a lot in the retelling to recommend it. Most of the other numbers are Shoehorn, Tiny Dancer, The Bitch is Back. It's kind of like the song Lily James did at the beginning of Mamma 
be a two kiss the teacher. It makes no sense in the context of the Oh, that's of the like every song Lily James did, in the, except probably, uh, you know. Mamma Mama Mia was great, dude. Okay. All right, cool. Okay. Um, right. We'll fight about that another day. In terms of the storytelling, it's not quite on Bohemian Rhapsody level bad, but there's a lot of bad things about it. The cliche, don't watch this film right after you watch Walk Hard, trust me. The entire story is framed as Elton John recounting his narrative while he is undergoing rehab. It starts in his childhood, just like many every other music biopic. No, this is not a bad thing, and yes, it's an interesting area of Elton's life, it's just that we've seen it done time and time again. Okay, I'm going to raise my hand and say something very stupid. I know nothing about Elton John's like younger life and anything else, so is that going to be influential? And should, Would I learn anything exceptional if I were to watch this movie, if I know nothing about Elton John's life? I, I, think I hope so. God damn, if I, we don't. You don't actually learn too much about his early life, honestly. <laughs> okay, that's even sadder. Um, I thought, like, at least if I knew nothing, that I could go in and come under the renewed appreciation of, like, oh, my God, now I know about Elton John. Look, the interesting areas of El- Actually, the most interesting era about Elton John is his late era post-1999 stuff. But the early Elton stuff, like mid-70s through to the 80s, it's really good. And that's the era they cover. However, they cover everything. They sandwich everything in. He, his first marriage was covered in two scenes. They try to cover his entire life, a Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's just way too much for a film. And on top of that, you have to, ha- you have to hit all the beats. Winning over cynical record producer. They name-check everyone from Dylan to Leon Russell. Lots of big montages going through years of signs. And remember the manager, Peter Baelish, in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody? Richard Madden, Rob Stark, plays the exact same role in this movie. It's very, very frustrating to see. So there's a couple, there's some great sequences. Um, the pinball wizard sequence where it just, where the, where the pace of the song is matched by the graphics and the effects, the amazing recreation of one of Elton's most famous video clips. And there is a, the worst sequence in the film is actually the titular sequence where uh, they recreate Rocket Man. It's a very badly done it's very over the top and they deal with a very serious issue in a and a very confronting issue in a not a serious way and don't follow through on the effects and ramifications of it so that was the worst aspect of the film okay. but there's a lot to recommend it though i think only enough to recommend it for casual to serious elton john fans Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I can. I can. I can live with that. Okay. So that was that was not Bohemian Rhapsody. That was Walk Hard, the Elton John story. No, that was uh, Rock the biggest, Man. Biggest question is: Is it going to win Taron Egerton his Oscar? He'll get nominated. I don't think he'll win. You think he'll get nominated? I think he's he's very good, and he looks the part. He um, obviously throws himself into it. Even the lousier numbers. Um, I didn't mention Saturday Night's Night's Alright for Fighting. It makes no sense in the context of the musical, but just how energetic he is, he makes it good. And the staging makes it this good. This movie so I think sounds will. so literal into how it uses the music. There's a sequence where, uh, look, the Rocket Rocket Man, uh, forgoing the actual meaning of the song and the meaning of any of the songs, really, they show him shooting off into the well. They, they, take, they take it extremely literally, and they, and they they missed out on songs that were much more consequential. Someone said, "My life tonight," "Empty Sky," "Mammon Across the Water," "Tumbleweed Connection," um, and even all the great later era Elton John stuff. It's just not there. It's. So there's, there's good things, but if you're a casual Elton John fan, see it. If you're not, um, maybe pick up one of his mus- albums and have a listen. So maybe it's uh, important that we actually, you know, actors now pick deliberately bad films and give standard performances because then it's easier to win an Oscar. Like Grammy Malek. Yeah. Like How did that happen? Grammy Malek? <laughs> <Grammy, laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was actually not good in Bohemian Rhapsody no, at all. Taron Egerton was better cast. Right. Okay. Much better okay. cast. Well, he's pale and whiter, so I guess, yeah. Um, is he? I think so. I don't, Quite pale. I don't, all right. Well, I don't think so at all. So um, uh, that is Rocket Madness and Cinemas tomorrow. The other film we're talking about in the last few minutes and continuing on the podcast is 
Aladdin, the remake. Just quickly, because we only have a couple of minutes. Um, what did we all think of Aladdin? What hey, we will I mean, I'll expand on this, but it was really strange. It was maybe it was low expectations, but I enjoyed a lot of it. I strangely did too. I um, I wouldn't recommend it, but I would for a, a, just a casual watch or a date movie. Yeah, I, I, unless my date would come to an end right there and right that moment, which has happened sometimes when I pick bad movies because I have a history of picking bad date movies. I think if you're right, that, take, takes his dates to see Reason. Not, you know, let's actually, go and see a four-hour film about. Actually, did take someone to see Cold War, and that was not a good idea. No, <laughs> no. There's an <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. It's dating advice from Film Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> suffice to say, we're not together. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, so uh, but but Aladdin. Back to Aladdin. Uh, look, I I do agree with you guys. It's it is fun, but I think our we are now just so desperate for just a little bit of fun that our expectations are so low. The bar is so low that Aladdin doesn't really have to do much, which is the sad bit. You know, this is not fun because oh my god, it's a breath of fresh air and it is fun, fun. It's like oh my god, at least it tried. So it's fun, you know, which is not what... Expectations have lowered dramatically in the recent dark years of blockbuster yes. corporate filmmaking. It's due to Solo. The expectations are so low due to Solo. So that is Aladdin. We will be talking much more detail about it on the podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, we will be back next week talking with City Film Festival director Nashan Moodley about um, any late editions that may or may not happen and the City Film Festival program. City Film Festival kicks off from the There's 5th late to the 16th next week. of June. There um, always are. And that Rocket Man is in cinemas tomorrow. Aladdin is in cinemas now. Hold off on, on fixing that program too much. Leave some space open. This has been Glenn Fowlings and Chris Evans of Marat Nehru. Join us soon for more Sydney Film Festival coverage. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night. Streets open sesame. Here we go. Arabian night. Like Arabian days. They tease and excite. Take off and take flight. They shock and amaze. Arabian night. Thank you for suggesting that, Farad. I have not heard that since 3.30 on school afternoons in my childhood no, home dude, watching. It was all about 9.30, like 8.30 on Saturday mornings. I'm pretty sure it was about that time that I, Aladdin would have played. I always thought it was late afternoon. Disney. I remember it was definitely on Saturday Disney. But mm. oh, now, I'm, oh, now I'm confused. That show was great. I actually preferred it to the Aladdin movies. It was. It was on Saturday. Disney. It's actually, one of those things where it, I, I, maybe it was like maybe it was great, but I'm not going to revisit it and check. <laughs> no, it, 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 it went fondly in my memories because, because the band got together. Iago was the good guy now, and they just went on adventures to other lands. And yeah. honestly, look, uh, you guys saw the English version, but back in India, it was translated into Indian languages, which made it really? even funnier. The TV so, show. The TV show. Oh, so wow. it was like I had not heard the actual English version of this song. <laughs> for a long time wow. so I have the Hindi version playing in my head which is not as exciting but still I have the Robin Williams dub which is a nice you know, a nice homage <laughs> but yeah so we're picking up on the new Aladdin film which does not star Robin Williams sadly it does star a number of new actors a number of established actors uh, we talked a little bit about how we feel about the film um, I feel they blew it <laughs> but I'm <laughs> Oh, well no, done. no, no! It's well actually, done. it's actually not that bad. I mean, it's kind of like the election. Just, they sl- just so you know, it's B L U E. Yes, yeah. Just to yes. spell it out, 
you know, it's like uh, in Batman singing that song in the animated Justice League version. Am I blue? You'd be too. And the tears in my eyes telling you. Wait, Batman sings this yeah, song? The, yeah, Kevin... Uh, Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy sings it, and it's the only time they have it, and it's it's fascinating clip of doing that in the animated Justice League. Cool. I, I would rather see an animated Justice League than the Justice League film. But anyway, um, Aladdin. So, look... It, look <laughs> we try to avoid talking about Aladdin in so yeah, many yeah. ways. Uh, uh, look, everyone went into this, us included, with really low expectations. And like the Liberal Party, uh, this has really benefited from that because... It's actually quite enjoyable in stretches. I was surprised because I've been a big fan and, of Guy Ritchie like for a number Liberal of years. Party, the only thing it exists for is is money. No, uh, <laughs> well, they, they do have the color blue in common. So yeah, true, <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah. I, I hope that that was intentional, Glenn, because otherwise your genius would be on another level. My genius. Oh. <laughs> no, but look, the best scenes of Will Smith is the genie, or when he's not blue, because it looks strange. The friend like me sequence is terrible, except for the reprise at the end with DJ Khaled, which is no. the best scene in the film. No, look, the um, the friend like me sequence, I was all right with because it just epitomized the film like it's this film is this bizarre cgi fantasia and this sequence was just all out digital nonsense you know the best scene in the film it had almost nothing digital in it they just sped up the action it was the new sequence where they were dancing to music to no no lyrics in the palace they all had to do a bit of acrobatics to um impress uh, the genie was trying to get him to impress the princess jasmine uh, that was really good. Again, the DJ Khaled bit at the end where they do the sped up version of Friend Like Me. Prince Ali was all right. Okay, guys, you know what you're saying? You're saying the movie bits that actually were good were the new, the fresh bits. Yes. You yes. know, the ones that were not trying to open, rape in, rape, sorry. Oh, rope, my God. Rope, rope in the original, sorry. That yes, was, that's... That was the worst Rodian slip. Oh, God. I've got Did you say the only... only... come up from that. The um, raping the original? Is that what I just heard? That, that, that's definitely it's not, okay, guys, not it's not that bad. It's it doesn't rape bad. the original. <laughs> There's a lot. This film has a lot of good things going for it. Inclu- rope, um, rope, The other new God. bit, though, I'm actually kind of split on. It was the... Naomi Scott song because there was no Princess Jasmine number in the original. Oh, geez. The song no, look, is completely dis- it, no, okay. It's it's <laughs> completely inconsistent with every other yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's, it's not a bad song in and of itself. And she maybe not. Naomi Scott is it a really sounds, good singer. She's a good actress. Look, it sounds nothing like the rest of the songs in the soundtrack. So it just draws your attention to how the original was so backwards in terms of gender roles and that this has been pasted in. You know the way that it just feels out of place I don't think we should I don't think we should criticize it by saying it's I mean yes it is in respect tokenistic but I still appreciated the song it was a good song it was an empowering song I've been listening to it uh, the soundtrack separately and I like it I enjoyed it and the, the prize actually was much better than the original staging of the song um, she only gets this, to sing a little bit at the, the beginning staging and then, of, of every you know um, of most of the original songs actually all of the original songs is derived from the way that they were staged in the original film and as soon as Speechless comes on, you can tell they just have no idea how to put together a musical sequence. She just walks around singing. There's no there's no striking visuals to go with it. There's no interesting choreography. She just walks around singing about how she wants to have agency. Agency. Yeah. Wow. Well, so Disney I, I, Disney brought brought female empowerment to the kingdom of Agrabah. But also, it's sad, right, that female empowerment is now reduced to a song. You know, that... that, that But it's tokenistic. It is tokenistic, but there's nothing beyond that song that kind of tells you otherwise. 
I, I still appreciate that the song was there, and I appreciate it was a good song. I know, but like, is, is um, that the bar? And once again, we yeah, like is, this the, 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 is the bar that we're going for? Is it like it's not even a hurdle? It's more like a doorstop. You know, and it's like it's it's that. Well, at least they added another female character in this film. Um, at least they added in a yeah, female character. That's that's what, where we're at. At least we added in a female character. The thing about I, I know it's sad, but this Simpadrad was really good, and her scenes with the genie were the best in the film. They were pure gold. This film is so weird. It's when I, when I was watching it, it struck me that this is not like the kind of film that Disney would otherwise make, ever. It uh, Disney, you know, look at what else Disney or anyone else making Hollywood blockbusters make. Have you ever seen anything like this Aladdin in the last twenty years? Um, Beauty and the Beast. It's That's comparable. also a Disney CGI, the- but out there, ma- you know, these films only exist because they're uh, well, making because money. of the they're because of the, the drive to make some money out of these. Yeah, beloved properties that are lying on the shelf. We haven't exploited them enough. But it's more than nostalgia. But it's more than nostalgia. You end up. It's the fact that this has a very defined audience. They waited decades for this audience to appear. It is the audience of people who were an adolescent or teenager at some point in the nineties who are now old enough to take the dates with their partners to see this movie, which will definitely get that audience. Additionally, it's going to get the audience of parents who want to take their kids. The point I'm trying to make is safe Disney movie. The point I'm trying to make is stylistically. Um, yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Outside of Disney live-action movies, it doesn't resemble... And this is this is the best thing about the film. It doesn't resemble anything that Hollywood would make. And you know why? You know why? Because it's the most colorful film it looks, I've seen. And so it's, it's visually weird, extravagant. But it, it's I would say it's kind of... Um, like, it is eye-popping, but I wouldn't say that the art direction is particularly good. It's so weird because it's locales that are, that are clearly designed and costumes as well for an animated feature and it's a structure of a plot um, everything about it screams you know early 90s animated feature or I should just say Aladdin because we're all familiar with that but it's suddenly been transposed into live action CGI blockbuster so the it feels completely fake you know like the um and sometimes, sometimes I find this interesting. Like the friend like me thing was so garish and fake that I thought, okay, no, that yeah. sequence Fair, was just cool. I couldn't handle it. It was too yeah. visually. Again, we'll I'll contrast it with the pinball wizard sequence in um, the Rocket Man, which was very creative but still subdued. There was just too much going on in the frame. Too many genies. The, the too whole many f- lamps. Yeah. Too much. It's too- it's not as successful as it is in animation because the whole new world scene. For um, when I watched that, I just thought it's stirring because the song is good. But it's a terrible sequence. It looks like a bunch of um, just generic CGI locales. A whole new world. A whole new oh, world. Yeah. In oh the God. in the cartoon, it it, it you know um, the there's, there's a no sense issue of wonder. There's yeah, sense of that's actual right. Magic. That's right. And there's no um, clash between the yeah. style of the people are drawing. There's no green screen issues. We've seen so much green screen crap that watching people fly through past like a CG waterfall and you know a CG village doesn't create wonder but the scene is worse than that in that it doesn't the chemistry doesn't work and it doesn't work with the lyrics um during the sequence moment where he says that you dare close your eyes she doesn't even bother to close her eyes <laughs> like there's no choreography no, sorry i keep doing that there's no choreography in terms of uh, the story itself they just relate the lyrics because they know that you're going to love this because it's a whole new world and you've yeah. seen it actually and you have to love yeah. it because it's your favorite song from when you were five years old Actually, the street rat sequence was weirder. I've, because oh, in that, um, in animation, you can sell 
the audience on people singing as they, you know, jump and run and parkour around and there's action and fighting going on. Seeing it happen in live action is kind of jarring because as I'm watching it, I'm thinking like, is, shouldn't he be out of breath? There's <laughs> <laughs> just this strange cognitive dissonance. You know, it doesn't translate. Do you know what this is a lot like? This is like the 50s era Universal MGM pirate features before they went out of fashion. There's a Burt Lancaster film called The Crimson Pirate, which yeah. is very colorful and in terms of costume and design and set design, but it's very much the appeal is the actors doing acrobatics and um, jumping around the set. And it's the same sort of thing. There was a really winsworthy sequence in this during that se- street rat sequence where um, the guard is running up after him. And he just kind of dodges him slightly behind, running up a bit of staircase and someone jumps in a way. And it, there's a cartoonish element to it, which doesn't match. And we'll get more into this, which doesn't match with how the cartoonish elements rendered throughout the rest of the film. It worked in the 50s, the Burt Lancaster movie, because the entire film was like that. But then they try to do gritty, realistic action and, um, they oh, cut, nothing about this is gritty or realistic. But, but, but they <laughs> aim for that with Jafar, which is the worst thing about the film, which we'll get to later. But I think the biggest issue with this movie is that they're trying to bring animation to life. And human action, even with the sped up, it simply isn't fast, or energetic or kinetic enough to match what they're trying to do with the dance sequences or the music. Talking about the dance sequences, I'll tell you an interesting factoid. This is the second Will Smith uh, appearance in a musical. In the same month, uh, he's also appearing in a Bollywood film where he's dancing for a minute in, in an actual dance number. And he's way more energetic in that one minute than he's in an entire genie performance in Aladdin. And I, was thinking, and I was thinking all this time, why didn't they go all out Bollywood musical? Because they're clearly going for that sense of wonder and music and fantasy and realism. And yet... They're not. Well, they almost did. And almost did. The thing with Agrabah, which has a very nondescript coastline, <laughs> yes. um, Agrabah doesn't exist. So they bring in elements of Persian, of Arabic, of South Asian culture, and they could have gone full pelt with this. There's a great bit where there's a both Middle Eastern and specifically Bollywood-inspired dance number, and I really like the scenes, the scene we refer to, which is original to the film, but they never really pursue that throughout the rest of it. It's a very... Um, for lack of a better term, Western uh, staged musical. And you had so much opportunity to branch out here. I mean, people roll their eyes at Bollywood musicals and say they're melodramatic and like whatever. But the thing is, it's very hard to do, to actually commit to the sense of fantasy. Uh, And I think Hollywood has kind of forgotten that, especially Guy Ritchie has definitely forgotten that. And he was was married to Madonna at one point, which is still the most weird factoid that I can think of. And he still doesn't know how to make a good musical. Uh, No, that's Madonna lately. Did you see a Eurovision performance? Uh, Okay, that's right. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah, but I I guess, you know, there is falls from Grace and then there's falls from Agrippa. So, you know, (laughs) you can only survive one. Uh, But it's, it's really sad. But what the one thing that I do kind of feel for is that. The performances weren't that bad. Naomi Scott is decent. She's, she was good. She's good. A lot of the pit characters, uh, what's the main guy's name? Like Mina, Mina Masudi is a Canadian yeah. actor. Yeah. He, was, he was charming. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Without, like, without being great. Yeah. He was Will good Smith was goddamn charming. Yeah. Will Smith was charming. Will Smith was your best mate, a super cool guy who you go out to a party with and go out to the club with and have a great time. The worst part about this film... Yeah, Chris is, is smiling because he knows yeah. exactly who I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> the the worst thing about this film is the Aladdin hangover, the franchise that it's carrying. Actually, if the actors were left to their own devices, they actually have the charm to, you know, tell you a story and be in a movie which, if devoid of any Aladdin hangover, 
could have been an actually a fun film. Like, I would be willing to go on an adventure with these people to a different land, which had nothing to do with Aladdin. I think Mina Masood was good about half the time. I would like to see him more in stuff outside this universe, um, which is why, again, uh, taking your point, uh, alluding to the TV series, which I really enjoyed, when they just let it free and let it go and they could do whatever they want and explore these exotic locales. There's a couple of moments like that in this movie. I think he can carry some of the lighter sequences. I don't think he can carry dramatic sequences at all. Naomi Scott certainly could. I just think a lot of the chemistry and appeal for their dynamic fell on her rather than him. And she's a much stronger performer than he was. I don't think he was oh, yeah, spectacularly I mean, well cast. Oh, God, yeah. He was kind of a wooden face when it comes to emotional emoting of any kind of seriousness, yeah. The um, yeah, as you say, the casts are, are really charming, um, with the exception of Jafar. Yeah, Marwan Kanzari, terrible, terrible casting. You, Jafar's one of the coolest characters. Like, who wouldn't want to play Jafar? And what's you needed someone who could chew the scenery, like Alan Rickman decided, as the sheriff of Nottingham. But, but oh, he was bad. They decided to play him as, I guess, a realistic Jafar, which is bizarre in a film that is in no way realistic. Exactly. Actually, on the subject of the realism, or lack thereof, what was with the handling of the animals? That okay. was that was odd. All right. Uh, Iago and Abu were really badly done. They just looked like actual animals without much real expression. The carpet was really bad too. I felt it was just a carbon copy of the cloak in Doctor Strange, which again was riff- which actually was riffing off Aladdin, the carpet in Aladdin originally. Well, there's all these CG characters hanging around who are just there. I think um, it feels like they're there because people might have you know complained if they weren't, and that's it. I'm going to draw a distinction though with Raj- Raja. He was really good, and I think was there's he? a picture of the tiger. Yeah, he was just a tiger. He had personality. I- I think tigers are just charming because they're tigers. I don't think they had to do much, to be honest. They're Bengal tigers. I mean, they're just, you know, a charming I, beast. <laughs> I think that the template of the original film makes this hard to completely screw up. They've stayed very, very close. And um, like as, as we were saying, like the cast have a likability to them. And it's fast-paced. It is eye-popping. There's a likability to this film. Um, the other, the other cast. There shouldn't be, we, <laughs> but there is. Yeah, the other cast member who we haven't mentioned, who I think is actually probably the best in this film, in the short role he had, was Billy Magnussen as what was either a German or Scandinavian prince. Um, if you remember the scene in the original where the prince was courting Jasmine and Raj bit him, and uh, he had like heart shaped underwear. It's about as close Wait, as you can get to real Ra- Raja. I think Raj. I forget. You, you said Raj, as in the Big Bang Theory, Raj. Was it Raja or Raja? The, I um, think the cat's Raja. Raja, okay, Raja. Yeah. And um, there are, uh, uh, yes, uh, you, you, watch, you the, watch the Big Bang Theory. No, Raj? it's it's all right. Oh no, my the, god, the, the this show is only, terrible. Only two Indian people will probably listen to this show. I'm sorry, all Indian people are not called Raj. We apologize. I I wasn't. Wow, I wasn't. <laughs> Things were escalated that. to a yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I know that for right. here. I, I have, to a CR I have studios. other Indian friends. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Some, well, some, if some you are called Raj Samad, so, yeah. oh yeah, actually, I, oh we're I, I, at, we're into the Indian friends excuse now. <laughs> <laughs> Things aren't looking good for Glenn. Hello, uh, well. hello Akshay. <laughs> I, know, I know you don't listen to the show, but you should. Wow, wow. Okay, so yes, the tiger. I've just looked Google it now. Is called Raja. Um, I, I, I don't see how they got to racialize, but there you go. No. I, <laughs> <laughs> And we're to so what we do, Billy McNusson. Yeah, he's really good. 
He uh, was funny. He was funny. He was only, and, he, yeah. he, and you know what's good about him? He was cartoonish. Yes. He was cartoonish in a way that none of the other performers were. Um, the Sultan wasn't cartoonish. Uh, Jasmine agree. and Aladdin certainly weren't. Will Smith was to a little extent, but it was really just charming Will Smith fresh principal aesthetic rather uh, yeah. than cartoonish fun. Actually, actually, that, that's a good point you make. Uh, I think Vigley Billy McNesson, um let me get my tongue straight. Yeah, because, because, because if, you, if you don't, that's culturally <laughs> insensitive, Virat. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, he seems to be the only one who's got the brief where he knows the tone that he's pitching at. I think every other actor is trying to either be like, I don't know exactly what kind of gallery I'm playing to. I think that's basically the problem of the movie. They don't know which universe they belong in. And and that is the problem of this film. It's it's a charming film, but it doesn't know what why it exists, which is fair. I don't know why it exists beyond the point that it's making a lot of money. That's uh, the reason. There's nothing... There's not enough that is new to recommend this film beyond the original. Like, who wouldn't rather... He had a choice between watching one or the other. I'll probably watch the cartoon again one day. Are we ever going to watch this again? Does this have any staying power? Will this replace the cartoon for anyone? No, I don't think no, so. Never. No, never. Never. Not not even no. close. And I think you can say that for any of the Disney movies. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Dumbo, granted. Hmm. Uh, but like, just, I, just, I, I, did, just, I did actually enjoy Maleficent more than Sleeping Beauty, to be fair. I mean, I mean, just, just, just right now. We all listen to the theme song again. You I get enjoyed, nostalgic for the original uh, yeah, film, not uh, for the exactly. new one. You know, but also in in those three minutes, we had more fun than I had watching the entire new movie at any Except point. Except for the DJ Khaled bit at the end. Okay, fine. Okay, you know, so we need more DJ Khaled, but <laughs> another one. <laughs> but yeah, and and that's that's sad that. That is, if that is supposedly to appeal to a new generation of people who are going to be, you know, oh my God, it's Aladdin, but no, guys, it's, you know, there's something that was captured in that moment of time that was precious and that was fun, which still is like a time capsule. Like, it's not gone away. Like, you can still listen to that, you can still enjoy it, and the fun comes back. You don't need to recreate it. You don't need to repackage it you don't need to resell it it's there already to exist for eternity and I wish studios just understood that and just kept it in their pants so that's a strange kept Aladdin in their pants speaking of pants where were Aladdin's pants like the white puffy ones yeah why, from, the, why were there no harem pants in this yeah and the purple's like best <laughs> Yeah, there, he, there was none of that. He he looked kind of like like a lobby boy. Yeah, yeah. at least I got the curly yeah. toe shoes right. Not because oh. <laughs> I, I, look, I'm trying to pre. I'm just I was going to try to preempt the joke that I saw coming, but then I realized I'd be digging a hole for myself. So I'm going to change the subject to something else. Like I mean, Glenn and I Rocket both have Man's dug holes for ourselves, but so you, <laughs> you might as well go for it, Chris. <laughs> Oh god! Oh well. Um, so yeah, the costuming. You know, the, I'll, I'll give we, you the costume. We're having more fun you, you, discussing this movie than I actually had watching this the, movie. The monkey, du- the monkey sucked. What's yeah, it? Abu. The, Abu. Yeah. He, he. What was the point of him? Oh no, he was. He was born. Yeah, you and, said. And, you said yesterday to me. Like, did you find him a little bit creepy? Yeah. It was a creepy monkey. <laughs> you know. You know. It was just a creepy, yeah. weird no, no. monkey. He looked, yeah. he looked a lot like the monkey from uh, Jeffrey Rush, the Jack Sparrow, the. 
Pirates of the Caribbean. He looked a lot like that. And, and like just, Jeffrey Rush. No. <laughs> I know what monkey you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah and, and the, that <laughs> monkey is Jeffrey Rush. Captain Barbosa has a monkey on yeah. his shoulder. In yeah. Yeah. so a generic monkey. Okay. okay. So what else about this film? Um, some of the costuming was good. Princess Jasmine, uh, she looked the part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jafar had actually was quite well dressed. I will give it to them. Like he looked the part, but he didn't. He had. Uh, there was nothing scary about him. No. And his voice. His voice was so. He has this kind of thin, high pitched voice. Yeah. It is like. Yeah. It's a very strange choice. Yeah. It was like as if you know he's somewhat intimidating, but then voiced by John Cryer. You know, and I was just like, you know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, what was good with Gottfried? Like, didn't have a voice. Not really. It was just Iago just repeated he just stuff. Said, no, he he did say things that were beyond repeating phrases at times. Yeah, mm. he he was this yeah. kind of stra- they went part way into Iago is a person that can talk. Yeah. Part way to he's just a parrot that Actually, repeats yeah, things. Yeah. So it is either that or just Matthew Broderick from like you know. Uh, Whatever. Matthew Broderick. Um, he, he, he played. Did he play Aladdin? He, he played. No, he played Simba in The Lion King. Yeah. Right. Is that that's what? Uh, yeah, Aladdin was played by some dude. Aladdin was played by. Like, this was an actually. A lot of the cast performers were professional voice actors rather than professional like A listers, mm. which is just fine. Which is how it, it probably was before Robin Williams being cast as Genie. That's a lot of the time. I'm not sure that started yeah. it, but I think the trend of um of a-list actors being cast in animated films was not yeah a it, it, thing it, it, until it not, yeah until yeah. big uh, um, I, I guess until the golden age of Disney animation that is that is correct mm. yeah as as it was in the YouTube video which I haven't watched that yet yeah but um, discussing that but you're right and and that's also with with Bat uh, the anyway the the other show which Robin Williams wanted to do with Disney which Disney kind of wanted to. Carl, so, because I'm not sure. What we're I, I'm not, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what we're either. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so who are we? What are we sure about? What are we sure about when you're talking about things? Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> yes, we it's Aladdin. So that is Aladdin. Um, so that is Aladdin, not featuring Ron Williams. And Aladdin gets confused about what he's talking about. Not featuring Jafar as a giant snake. Uh, that is in cinemas what? now. Oh yes. Yeah, there was oh, no, no giant oh, snake. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, Wait, that was. That, it's that, very that, disappointing. I was, I was holding out for that. Best part of my childhood. Whoa! Wow, um, I was more of a Lion King fan, but no, yeah, Lion King. Lion King is just a glorified Hamlet. Yeah, it was I'd beautiful. Rather, I'd rather read Shakespeare. Okay, you read Shakespeare when you were five years old. Yeah, the Childhood Mary Lambert. I, I believe you. I believe you, Varad. I believe you. <laughs> so that is Aladdin. Sorry, I've revealed some very sad truths about my life today. <laughs> it's in cinemas now. Um, Zidney uh, Film Festival kicks off next Wednesday, the 5th of June. Um, in the last few minutes, I, we were going to return to Rocket Man to talk about a more serious aspect of it. Just to recap the movie, yeah, look, I, I take the view. As an Elton John fan, I think it is something that casual to dedicate Elton John fans will enjoy. If, there's, if, it's, if you're not one of those, I don't think there's a... While there are some elements of the craft and storytelling that are interesting, I don't think there's enough in it to recommend it in and of itself. I always like films to be appealing regardless of your um, empathy or interest in the subject matter and that should expose you to a new subject area. I I would love to see a film about an artist that I'm not too interested in and which gets me interested in their story by virtue of how um, original and creative the storytelling is. Um, But speaking of Rocketman, we want to talk about, um, I think, the film's greatest attraction. Before we do that, we're going to give a content warning. We're going to be talking about quite a serious issue 
which we discussed in quite some detail, which was occurring throughout the City Film Festival program last year in terms of the films that played, which was is the issue of suicide. And we'll be providing the lifeline, the number to Lifeline later in the program. When we spoke, when we recapped the City Film Festival last year, we saw roughly in the order of 110 films. Uh, I think about a th- together, about a third of those we counted had prominently within them the issue of suicide, and that was either depicting suicide or alluding to it or discussing it or having it featured prominently as a thing. Yeah. Um, this in Rocket... So far, suicide hasn't appeared in any of the films I've watched pr- before from the festival prior to the festival, so... Um, neither. Neither, no. Yeah, well... Yeah, um, that's... It's good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's change it, of pace. It, it is a relief. It's, um, yeah. Rocket Man. We spoke towards the end of the review at the beginning of the show about a scene um, where the most widely publicized scene in the film and it features him in a swimming pool. Uh, The way the scene plays out is that he walks up to the swimming pool, um, announces and alludes to in no small way that he intends to um, commit suicide, falls into the pool and then um, begins to sing Rocket Man with a version of his childhood self underwater. Now, there were many more appropriate songs that could have played at this time. Um, Someone Saved My Life Tonight, they chose Rocket Man for this instance. From the underwater scene, they progress to a bit where he's on a stage and he's continuing Rocket Man, and quite literally, and unlike what is actually anything in the song, he takes off like a rocket in flight, and then the next scene, he's on a plane being served by women in short skirts and everything seems okay. Now, um, aside from the fact, putting aside the more serious consequential aspects of it the scene itself is garish um, it is unnecessary and it's completely eternally distinct from everything else in the film uh, now to the more consequential aspects of it we spoke in the context of the city film festival last year and it's not just in the context of the films that played there but many films that play throughout the year how the issue of suicide or the act of suicide is used as an aside or a passing note or as a plot device. It's frustrating. I I thought and hoped we would have moved on to an extent from that, certainly in films that many thousands and millions of people are going to see, we certainly haven't. It deals with the issue very, um, very quickly. It passes it by. It doesn't. It, it shows it as a big dramatic event in his life, but doesn't reckon with the consequence or significance of this. Now, this is evident for a lot of the film. I alluded earlier to how his marriage, his first marriage, is shown in just a couple of scenes. Um, really big aspects of his life are run through very quickly. Now, if you, as a general uh, criticism of filmmaking, you should take the time to tell aspects of a story, otherwise make a four or five-hour movie or a miniseries. But if you're going to include an aspect as important as this, certainly I didn't feel they wanted to pass over it, you have to reckon with it and you have to follow through and you have to show um, the aftermath of the consequences. Certainly a lot of the film does take place in um, as f- by flashbacks where he is in rehab and trying to um, climb back to regular life and take stock. But the immediate, there's no immediate follow through for this hugely emotional, and very consequential event. And in a film which has a lot of hits, has a lot of misses, I found this very strange. I found this very disappointing. And I think it's really a lousy thing for films to do. I think um, it's something that I think we need to move on from in cinema. And I think it's something that Rocket Man, as what will be a very prominent film for years to come, sets a very bad example for. It it sort of uh, reminded me of this um, very big problem that I have with mainstream cinema at this point, especially Hollywood films, is how or can they actually reckon with serious topics and if they want to, uh, how do they do it? 
and uh, uh, is everything played up for a gag or a joke or everything needs to be undercut with some kind of humor uh, which kind of sidelined some very important and serious discussions which need to have and if you're including either I'll be okay with the fact that you don't allude to that at all you completely omit that because that's not the kind of story you're telling but if you want to tell that story I feel it's important to do it justice in a way that uh, you give the subject the sensitivity that it deserves and I feel that's where a lot of the films in the mainstream space are falling short because they have to appeal to the broadest kind of audience and they have to put bumps on seats it's a sad juxtaposition unfortunately I think it's pretty alluding to one of the points you made it's pretty emblematic of this film and also to an extent Bohemian Rhapsody where I feel the filmmakers felt they had to tick off so many boxes this was a well known and quite a confronting chapter in Elton's life certainly he's been more vocal about it in recent years I would have been perfectly fine with um, foregoing large aspects of like even confining the film to a couple of years of a mentally more complete story but if you're going to tell things like uh, you're going to cover aspects like this you have to cover them well you have to do it properly and you can't just cut corners and they did and the film goes at such a breakneck pace it is um not it's not great from a storytelling perspective it's less forgivable when you're dealing with matters as serious as this the the other kind of big problem that i have with it is the fact that you're not allowing your audience to feel anything serious like you know uh, right now if you're going for a mainstream movie you have you're going in with the primary intention of being entertained and you know you have to feel light you have to feel fuzzy and warm and any kind of serious or melancholic emotion is almost brushed away or under the carpet which is kind of I don't know if that's something I kind of can digest so that is our discussion a renewed discussion about Rocketman um, I feel that even though we have discussed the um, greatest attraction of the film it is still a film worth seeing it is, it's something obviously people have to um, take stock of if they do see the movie but there are many aspects to it which are incredibly creative I certainly take the view um, that as, as a big Elton John fan, if you don't know his music too well and you're interested in, you know a few of the songs, if you saw The Lion King and are anticipating the new remake, uh, maybe see this because you'll be exposed to a lot more of his songs, many of his great songs. And then if you like the artist, just the same as I would say with Queen of Bohemian Rhapsody, go pick up an album. Uh, and that number for Lifeline, if you are having difficulties, you are feeling issues, or there's someone you want to talk about anything to, we encourage you to very, very much do so. Um, the number for Lifeline is 131114. That's 131114. If you feel the need to do so, please do give them a call. So that is Film Fight Club. Um, that is Rocket Man is in cinemas tomorrow. Aladdin is out now. The Sydney Film Festival, uh, political documentaries and everything else is screening from the 5th to the 16th of June around Sydney. There's... Well, around Sydney and Sydney is the centre of the universe. So, you know, this is the place to be. In the world. In the world. The Sydney Film Festival will be playing... Oh, we, we forgot more park. We forgot more park. Hoyts. Uh, yeah. We said Ritz. Yeah. We said Orpheum. Entertainment quarter, as we said. Entertainment is there. And the State Library. And oh yes, the State Library. Yeah. yeah. And the Art Gallery of New South Wales, actually. Sorry, not the State Library. The Art Gallery of New South Wales. Yeah. I'm going to say different yeah. places. Very close, but different places. Yeah. But, you know, art is there. Art is there. Have a wonderful night. Art lives. Um, <laughs> good. Good morning, Agrabah. It's probably morning there right now, and. Good night. Good Everyone night, else. Vietnam.